Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Last year, I recorded a podcast with Lachlan Shaw, NAB's Head of Commodities Research, about gold and its outlook. And it was one of our most popular recordings in a year that was massive for market news. So fascinating that that was the topic that captured so much of people's attention. I've asked him back again to help our listeners understand some of the commodities trends that investors are clearly interested in right now. There's a lot to cover because you may have been noticing there's talk of a commodity super cycle. Maybe it's happening, maybe it's not. Iron ore's at record prices, which is doing some extraordinary things. There's a global scramble for lithium and rare earths. There's a lot to talk about. Lachlan, thanks so much for joining me. Great to come back uh, and uh, talk to listeners, Gemma. So, Lachlan, one phrase, I'm going to get right into it, one phrase that investors may be reading about at present is this story of a new commodity super cycle. Some of us, um, and it makes me feel a little bit old, actually, given the age of some of our investors and some of our listeners, uh, would remember the China boom, right? That was the very big news after the GFC, and it was all about commodities. But for, for some of our investors and some of our listeners, that might be a whole new concept, right? It was 15 years ago that started, maybe even earlier. So can you give us an idea of what pundits are talking about and whether or not you think they're on the money? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And the super cycle narrative has certainly emerged and been a key support in the market this year. Um, you know, for, for, for me, what the super cycle meant and what, what people are talking about is this idea that we are in for, or commodity markets are in for an extended period of very strong demand growth, uh, coupled with um, you know, a very challenging backdrop for supply, you know, most often being miners, to expand production into that demand um, uplift. And so really um, diving into those two, two themes for a second to unpack the, the idea, the, the strong demand uh, narrative that underpins the super cycle is really about, uh, I guess, a couple of things. So, Firstly, it reflects on uh, countries coming out of the pandemic, vaccines rolling out, um, pandemic restrictions um, ending, um, but most importantly, the huge amount of stimulus that was put into the global economy last year actually starting to deliver much stronger economic activity and commodity demand. And we're certainly seeing that at the moment. Uh, the second idea relates to the composition of that stimulus. And that's really about infrastructure on the one hand. So we are seeing in many markets, uh, China and Europe and the US, you know, big parts of these stimulus programs are being targeted to infrastructure. Um, so construction of you know, bridges, railways, roads, um, you know, 5G networks, all sorts of things that are using more commodities. Um, and, and that sort of push to build infrastructure you know, usually uh, takes years um, to be completed um, as, as these projects, they're, they're often big and they take a long time to actually build. And so that's the second key plank. And the third key plank is this idea of energy transition. Uh, and, and we're seeing that manifest in you know, massive 
portions of these stimulus packages being targeted towards green infrastructure. So renewable power, electric vehicles, um, batteries, um, all sorts of things that are again being cited as a key demand driver for a lot of metals. Uh, and the reason is quite simple. Renewable power, um, solar, wind, um, is around, well, it's you know four to 12 times as intensive in key metals like copper, aluminium, steel, uh, compared to the power capacity it replaces. So that's really the, the super cycle demand thematic. And then supply side is quite simply the reality that um, it, it's getting more and more difficult to build new mine capacity globally um, because of a whole range of factors. Um, and with that demand uh, coming through, uh, the super cycle is the idea that industry will struggle to keep up and therefore we'll see very high commodity prices for a very long time. That's a beautiful explanation. So the next question then, do you think they're on the money? Do you think that this talk is, is about right? So I think, it's, I think it's partly right. I think there's no question the energy transition uh, will be a feature of commodity markets for two to three decades. Uh, and certainly, you know, if the world is to make the Paris uh, climate agreement um, targets um, for, for warming of 1.5 to 2 degrees, um, you know, that energy transition needs to happen um, and is only going to accelerate. And so I think that's that's right. The infrastructure thematic, I think, is right too. Um, where where I would probably have a few doubts is on the supply side. And I think for me, the issue will be, you know, as, as prices inevitably keep rising, the incentive is for more capacity to come into the market. And so we're seeing that right now, for example, in iron ore. Iron ore prices are at record highs and we're seeing this dramatic rush into the iron ore trade from new suppliers. And obviously when supply starts to grow, um, chances are that prices might start to come down. So I think that's the first thing. We'll see a, a large response from supply side. I think the other thing that will be a big part of the supply response will be recycling and this shift towards the circular economy, uh, particularly in places like China, um, but more broadly, globally, Again, um, a big uplift in recycling and the circular economy will be one of the ways that the world can reach the Paris Climate Accord targets. And so if we start to see a real push to recycle more, um, to re, you know, reduce wastes, all those sorts of things, that means that commodity markets won't need to supply as much new metal, if you like. So, so I think, look, I think, um, we're no doubt in for a period of very strong prices. Um, whether it's you know a decade of of record high prices, you know perhaps for me that's probably a little bit strong. That's such a fabulous explanation. I think for a lot of people it helps to have that context when you're looking at these things. It can get exciting, uh, and sometimes we get a bit carried away. I remember. Yeah, when we started talking about the China boom, there were a bunch of young blokes I worked with who frankly had no understanding about any of it, but kept saying everything was stronger for longer. It was always stronger for longer. That was the answer to everything. <laughs> and so they just <laughs> kept right. saying that and uh, and selling it to their clients. And uh, and as an, as an observer, it was always interesting to go, like, is it going to be stronger for longer? Is that how it's going to work? So 
the shifts now, I mean, the China boom was was a fairly straightforward story, right? You had very rapid industrialization and urbanization of the largest population on earth and yes. uh, and that has some uh, some very significant impacts whereas this seems to be a more global story not just china it is um it, it's absolutely a global story um and in fact in in key parts of you know the, the energy transition in the last 5 years for example in the electric vehicle um, industry, the automotive industry more generally, that push has shifted from being, you know, predominantly about China a few years ago, to now being predominantly about the rest of the world. Uh, we've seen this extraordinary pivot in Europe and North America auto markets, uh, and you've now got companies like Volvo moving to 100% electric drivetrains by 2030. Uh, Ford moving to 100% EV drivetrains by 2030 in Europe and globally in 2035. Um, you know, and, and that's we're, we're seeing that across all of the auto OEMs globally. And so it has really um, spread. And, and if you were to contrast um, the current period and the current outlook with the China boom, what you would say is that that's one of the key differences. Um, the energy transition is a global phenomenon. It's a global push to decarbonize power, industry, heat and transport. Um, and, and that is the significance for the commodity markets. Um, that demand to basically re completely rebuild and re-engineer um, you know, key energy and transport verticals globally to reduce carbon. Um, it's it's not just one country or group of countries. It's it's the entire uh, global economy. And I think that's that's why when you know I look at the market and look at the outlook for things such as copper and lithium, you know, it's an incredibly um, supportive backdrop. So I was going to ask you about iron ore now, but we've transitioned into renewables, and I think that's. It's such a strong story and it is one that our investors are genuinely interested in. So you're going to talk about the key commodity inputs for it because it's not my area of expertise. Many of our investors are very keen on lithium in particular. That seems to be the story that's captured people's attention and they've been keen to play the sort of key companies on the ASX with exposure. So they get into Pilbara Minerals, for example. So can you talk to us for a start about why lithium is essential for renewables, how and where it comes from, whether you think the hype's warranted? You've already talked to that a little bit. Talk to us about copper as well and why that's relevant. Yeah, sure. So, so lithium, the story for lithium is really a story about batteries. And the reason that the battery story is so important for lithium is that uh, lithium is the most electroconductive element in the product table. So it's it's the most suitable for being used in a battery. And it's also um, one of the smallest and lightest um, elements out there. So particularly for batteries in cars where volume and weight is a is a real constraint, you know, lithium is ideally placed to be, you know, a key ingredient. Um, and, and that's really what we've seen. Um, the lithium-ion battery industry um, is growing um, at an incredible rate of knots. Um, that is a story about um, electric vehicle 
production and penetration growing exponentially. So last year, uh, the world uh, produced about 3.1 million electric vehicles. Um, that was up 46% year on year. In a year when global auto sales fell 15% because of the pandemic. All right, so even though the pandemic was crunching the auto market globally, electric vehicle sales you know, were flying off the handle and they are set to continue growing exponentially. And so those electric vehicles are being powered by lithium ion batteries. Um, all batteries that go into EVs today have lithium in them. And lithium performs the essential role of effectively, you know, storing current, storing electricity um, between when a battery is charged and when a battery is used to propel the car forward. The outlook for the the global um, battery market is is quite unbelievable. Um, so last year, global um, lithium-ion battery capacity stood at around about um, 400, uh, three to 400 gigawatt hours per annum. Um, based on battery factories that are operating today and have been announced um, either in construction today or yet to start construction, that will grow to about 2.5 terawatt hours by 2029, which is seven and a half years away. All right, so you're talking about sevenfold increase just in terms of what we know today um, by the end of decade. The, the scary thing is that um, a lot of work going into the transition pathways needed to meet the Paris Agreement actually stipulate that we probably need about twice as much battery capacity by 2030. And so when you look at what, the, what all that means for the lithium market, last year, the lithium market was around about 340,000 tonnes um, of what's called lithium carbonate equivalent. That is set to grow to between two and a half to three million tonnes by 2030. So in eight and a half years time, here's a market that is set to lift by eight to tenfold in volume terms. Now, the opportunity for Australia is last year, Australia supplied 47% of lithium globally into the global battery chain. Uh, we are the largest supplier of lithium, and that is based on um, you know, really good resources of um, hard rock lithium, uh, most notably in Western Australia, but also um, in the Northern Territory. And so, you know, the outlook uh, for this sector is extraordinary demand growth. Um, Australia is placed really, really well. We have a great resource. We have a very strong mining industry with deep expertise in executing on these projects. And, um, you know, th th this is an element that, that's needed. Um, it, it will be a key part of the energy transition for decades to come. I think many of our investors will absolutely love that explanation and also that that outlook. I'm fascinated by the the potential of a real bring forward in demand for some of this stuff. I think cars are such an interesting example where when you talk about, you know, global vehicle manufacturers starting to phase out the internal combustion engine, right? They're just getting rid of it. And we have an old car. 
and I kind of like the idea of just hanging out so we can get an EV because we just don't drive enough to justify getting a fancy new car, right? Um, and I wonder how many people will be going, I'm not going to buy a car with an internal combustion engine in 2027, for example, which is only six years away. You know, if I turn over my car every three or four years, whatever's typical, I'm not going to buy one in 2027 because no one's going to be making parts in 2031. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it, it will be that that transition uh, of the global automotive industry, you know, from what we've known for, for decades and decades to to what's new, um, you know, it, it's it's going to be challenging for, for some. And, and, you know, I'm in the same boat. I have, um, you know, a, a diesel vehicle and I love my vehicle at the moment, but my, my next car, um, you know, I'm, I'm virtually certain it won't be a pure um, internal combustion engine. It might be a hybrid mm. um, or it might be a full battery electric um, because, again, you sort of roll forward and think, okay, well, if I, you know, replace my car in three to five years' time, I might look to get three to five years or, or 10 years or whatever it might be out of that vehicle. The resale value, big question mark there. Oh, yeah. And then and then servicing, big yeah. question mark there. Yeah. Um, you know, so and that's actually uh, leads to another um, sort of issue is electric vehicles have typically 70 to 80% less moving parts than an internal combustion vehicle. And so servicing of EVs um, is going to plummet because they, 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 just, they tend not to break down in the oh, way that's that fascinating. in the way that internal combustion engine cars do. So, you know, there's a whole industry out there in terms of, um, you know, auto parts, um, automotive servicing, um, all that sort of stuff um, that, that is going to face some big challenges as this transition unfolds. Well, the other one that's been pointed out to me is that petrol stations will just start to disappear. And then again, that feeds into you bring forward where you go, there used to be three petrol stations on my way home and now there's one and the price is insane and I don't know if, you know, suddenly it becomes a, a real, so at the moment a lot of the talk in Australia is, oh, there's not enough infrastructure, infrastructure to support charging electric vehicles. But this argument is going the other way, saying that you're not going to have the infrastructure to get petrol for your old car anymore, not to mention parts and everything else, but just simply filling it up. If you're filling up a couple of times a week because you drive a lot, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to go out of your way. It's going to be expensive because no one's going to bother supplying that anymore because the demand has dropped so much. I find that a really interesting story as well. Yeah, it is, and um, th there's some really fascinating behavioural changes that that take place when uh, consumers shift towards EVs. And one of them is, you know, in in many ways they just become like your phone. So you, you come home and and you plug the car into the wall, and it sits there plugged in to your house power system and the grid or whatever it might be. Um, and so, what we tend to see there there have been surveys done on this in terms of EV owners they tend to prefer to charge their car at home, uh, much like we do with our phones. And then you get any point about, about service stations. Um, what tends to happen is they become um, not quite, you know, you know, charging points of last resort, but certainly they roll out fast charges and superchargers, and particularly on, um, you know, highways and trunk roads uh, between towns and cities, um, you'll get these these recharging stations popping up 
that have you know banks of superchargers that you know can give your electric vehicle an 80 to 90% charge in 20 minutes so you pull up you get out of the vehicle you connect it you go to the bathroom you get a coffee get a sandwich maybe check your phone for 10 minutes and you're at 80 to 90% and you're ready to keep going and and we're seeing those networks rolling out in Europe and across North America um, we'll see them roll out uh, in Australia too um, but for the most part, you know, people will prefer to charge their car at home. And then when, when you can't, so people who live in apartments or high density dwellings, um, there'll be the option of charging in car parks at places of work in the city or wherever it might be, um, shopping centres, um, train station, car parks, whatever it might be. So, so this is where um, the, the industry will head. And it, it does mean that, you know, you don't need to be trying to find the cheapest petrol price on a Tuesday or whatever it might be. You're much, you're much more likely to just come home, plug your car in, uh, and go about your business. It's just an amazing story. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. You know, there's uh, not a great deal of enthusiasm for EVs in Australia relative to other parts of the world, but you have to assume that's going to change, not least because we don't manufacture our own vehicles here, so we are going to be uh, supply takers effectively. <laughs> you get given what's available. Yeah. It's not like we're going to go, oh, we might start making our own internal combustion engines down here. Um, you know, so you take what's available and nine years is not that far away when you've got most of the global manufacturers with a target in mind and it's pretty soon. Certainly when you consider the average life of vehicle, it's, it's interesting, you know, whether it's front of mind for everybody is another question, but I find it fascinating. Yeah, it'll be, it will be very interesting. And it's curious because Australia in many ways is a world leader in the rollout of rooftop solar. And so I think it's one in four houses in Australia now has solar panels in their roof. Um, and there are certainly expectations that that will grow and continue to grow um, in coming years. And, and what we'll see as that growth continues is more and more people will install batteries in their homes too. And so, you know, we're one of the world's fastest and leading adopters of decentralized um you know green electricity production um but you, you rightly point out we are a laggard in terms of evs and um you know but I, I do think though we've seen some announcements coming through on the policy front from the victorian state government um over the weekend about more support for evs i think the tide will change and i think also one of the perhaps differentiating factors in the Australian market is this idea that Australians travel a long way. You know, it's it's quite common for Australians to think, okay, you know, I live in Melbourne, I have friends in Sydney, I might go up there for a long weekend and I'll drive, you know, I'll go and drive nine hours, um, you know, go and go to Europe and float that idea of driving nine hours to see your friends for a weekend and, you know, they'll recoil in horror. Um, Australians have this um, recognition of, you know, it's a, it's a very big country, big distances involved. And so therefore, there's been a bit of anxiety about electric vehicle range. Um, that's all changing too, though. Um, you know, it's common now uh, for sort of mid to high end EVs to have five to 600 kilometres of range in a charge. Um, there are EVs coming in the next year or two. Um, you know, big sort of SUVs, utes from both new entrants and um, existing producers that will have, you know, seven to 800 kilometre ranges and, 
there is new battery uh, technology coming that will that will start to roll out mid late decade that will see the the capability of EVs step up again. So again, this industry is about technology. It's about evolution and improvement in technology. Um, and we just continue to get better and better at making batteries and making EVs that go further and further. And so I think I think as that happens, we will inevitably see um, Australia start to catch up and embrace embrace this trend. I think also Australia is a tiny market from a consumer perspective in terms of our actual supply of the inputs, uh, in terms of the lithium and so on. It's not terribly relevant what we do as a country. <laughs> you can still make no, an awful lot of money true. out of it just by selling it to everybody else, even if we don't get on board. So the other big play that seems to be getting a lot of investor attention, you're talking about technology, is the whole rare earth story. And I love this because everyone loves to talk about the fact that rare earths are not that rare. It's just getting your hands on them. That's the problem. <laughs> um, Linus is a big favourite from a lot of our investors. It's terribly volatile. So can you tell us about this market? It seems to be a really interesting one. Yeah, it is a fascinating market. And, and in a way, you know, um, rare earths is almost like, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, the salt or the umami flavour in, in, a, in a great dish. You know, it's, it's there in tiny amounts. But without it, you, you don't have the dish. Um, and so rare earths, um, as you say, they're, they're not geologically rare, um, but they are rare in terms of um, deposits that are economic to extract. Um, the extraction can be quite challenging. Um, there's a whole suite of um, these rare earth uh, metals and minerals. And the use of rare earths is, is in a lot of um, this evolving technology. So particularly in, um, for example, uh, wind turbines for wind power mills, uh, rare earths go into magnets um, for various other applications. There are rare earths going into magnets, um, semiconductor manufacturing and um, you know, capacitors, uh, computers, all sorts of things um, have you know, traces of these rare earths. And without them, they just don't perform as well. Um, and that's critical because it's that performance that enables the technology costs to keep falling and driving higher rates of adoption of things such as wind power, um, solar power, um, batteries, um, you know, supercomputers from the point of view of semiconductors and so on. So the demand outlook again there is, is very strong um, just because of this, if you like, this fourth industrial revolution around technology and um, um, massive growth in demand for semiconductors and chips as the internet of things, 5G takes off AI, machine learning, et cetera. The issue, so the demand outlook is really good. The, the supply side has been where there's a lot of interest because China is the world's biggest supplier of rare earth metals, um, both from the point of view of um, domestic supply, um, domestic mining and, and production of rare earths there, but also China's importation of um, rare earth mineral concentrates. Um, Linus, in effect, um, is the world's biggest sort of non-Chinese supplier. And so that's been a key part of the thesis um, in favour of, of Linus's growth, if you like, and their evolution. But I think where the interest is in this sector is, you know, uh, recognition from the downstream industry that 
you know, some diversity of supply and um, encouraging development of projects and producers outside of China is probably in everyone's interest from the point of view of having a healthy market that has reduced supply risks. And so that's where the opportunity is. Uh, and that's where we're seeing now, um, both in terms of investor support for rare earth projects coming through, but also increasing amounts of government support, um, both in terms of um, procurement, um, you know, signing offtake deals, but also direct support for new projects outside of China to, to move through the feasibility stages and into production eventually. So, so that's where the interest is. And I'd certainly agree that, um, you know, these rare earths are needed um, to underpin the broad uh, energy transition and and this push to, to to low and zero carbon and and that's really the key um, the key part of the investment thesis. Can you tell us about the price for rare earths because I find this one quite interesting as well. I mean, Linus is is I feel like it's price peaked in two thousand and eleven because because of like fairly dramatic changes in the rare earth pricing. Yeah, so look, I mean, um, it's rare earths is always sort of priced in terms of a, a, a basket of the, the different um, the different commodities. Um, there, there are some uh, of the rare earth minerals that price independently. Um, others are priced in that basket. Um, again, it's been a little bit, I think, like uh, lithium in so far as we've seen, you know, incredible volatility um, in pricing. Um, we've seen the market go through a cycle of, um, you know, initially very, very bullish hopes uh, for a great demand side outlook and uh, prices have lifted. But then, you know, again, these markets aren't particularly big. And so if you get a project that is of reasonable size that can come into the market, um, often it can swamp um, the demand growth. And we saw that in lithium in 2018-19. Um, um, demand story was excellent, but we just had too many projects come into the market at the same time and supply overwhelmed demand and price collapsed. And so we've seen that sort of volatility in rare earth prices well, uh, um, over time um, in recent history. But the other thing that's been you know, interesting with rare earths and really a key, again, a key catalyst for um, the downstream use of rare earth minerals to seek diversification has been policy intervention and really policy intervention um, in China. So talk of, um, you know, either, uh, you know, removing export quotas or boosting export quotas or trying to encourage the rare earth mining industry there to clean up its act um, and reduce pollution. You know, all these things have had over time pretty dramatic impacts on um, the perceived availability of material from China, uh, remembering again that they've been, you know, the, the biggest supply, 90% of, of industry is supplied by China. Um, but then also we've seen policy outside of China too. And, you know, Linus you kind of got caught up in that um, when the government of Malaysia imposed um, sort of restrictions on their processing plant um, in Malaysia. And they've since, you know, taken the decision to, to build a plant in, in Australia, which, um, you know, I think is probably a reasonably sensible response. Um, but, again, but again, it just goes to show um, this is a trade that, notwithstanding the hype on the outlook, 
and which I think is justified. It's a trade which is relatively small, uh, which is relatively concentrated, and where policy intervention can have a really big impact on prices of the commodity, and then ultimately what that means for um, you know for investments. It's a really helpful uh, explanation. I think for a lot of people, it's worth keeping that in mind, and for newer and novice investors, you know, when you, when you, the demand story is so strong for this stuff, right? Like it is, it's so compelling, but without understanding some of the supply constraints and also, as you said, those policy issues, uh, you can kind of be horrified by some of the price movements. It can come as a bit of a shock when you're thinking the demand is there. Why is it moving around so much? There's oh, yeah, often absolutely. some good reasons. Let's, well, we've covered off the sexy stuff, right? We've covered off the stuff where the demand story is very exciting and it's fun and it's all new technology and that kind of thing. Should we go back to iron ore because it's critical? Um, yeah, it's such a core, uh, not just you know, for Australian exports, obviously, but also for so many investors' portfolios. I mean, BHP was sort of right in there with the banks. It's in the top five of investors' holdings for such a long time and you know, Australians sort of understand it as being key to our fortune sometimes as a nation. You're talking about China as well. Many of our investors are sort of keen to play the whole iron ore story and China seems to be pretty willing to whack uh, various types of sanctions on Australia for everything except iron ore. <laughs> Can you tell us about what's happening with the outlook, what's happening with the price, You know, what investors should be thinking about with iron ore at the moment? Yeah, sure. Look, um, I mean, you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. This is, um, you know, this is key. Uh, for Australia and and investors in Australia, um, and, and for good reason. So, you know, today um, the iron ore price is you know within a whisker of all time record highs in US dollars. Um, so um, prices as of overnight were about just under one hundred and ninety dollars a ton. Um, you know, they they they, they could move. Um, Further from here, they could move a bit, a bit higher. Um, interestingly, in Australian dollars, um, the current price is sort of 240 Australian dollars a ton. Now that that price level is a again uh, a record high. It is about 20% higher than the peak Australian dollar price in the China boom in 2010. Right. So here we are. Um, you know, coming out of a pandemic, and we have just this exceptional iron ore price environment. Now, how do we get here? So, on the one hand, demand side has been very, very strong, and that's been a story about China. Uh, in turn, it reflects a huge construction pipeline in China today, and very strong manufacturing growth. And that's both those things reflect China's enormous stimulus that they put in the economy last year in response to the pandemic. And so we've seen in China you know, record steel production, um, record steel prices, steel inventories are falling. Um, you know, All that's very, very positive for the iron ore market. But the steel boom in China, it, it, the steel boom is not just a China thing. If we look at steel prices in North America, in Northern Europe, and China, we today have highest prices ever. Um, we are in a global steel boom. Um, and so that demand side for iron ore has never been better. So that's the first piece of the puzzle. 
The second piece is really on the supply side. And it's it's been a combination of things that have that have sort of resulted in the market ending up where it is today. So we need to go back to January 2019 when tragically there was a tailings dam collapse at one of Vale's mining complexes in Brazil. Um, it's a tragic accident. Um, a couple of hundred people sadly uh, lost their lives. As a result of that event, Vale shut about a quarter of its output. So it took about 100 million tonnes a year of iron ore out of the market. And the reason was they needed to check the safety of uh, Tallings dams at those facilities, and then they committed to uh, changing those mines from wet tailings to dry tailings. And that would mean um, less reliance on these tailings dams. But that process of changing was going to take three years, right? So it, it won't be until the end of 2022 um, until Vale has, you know, can return its, its assets to full nameplate capacity. But the point is, there's been this big chunk of supply out of the market. And so then we come into um, 2020, we have the pandemic in the first half, the second half, China stimulates aggressively, demand really starts rising strongly. We come into summer, the iron ore price was, was going up. And then we had the usual summer wet season in Brazil and Australia. Heavy rainfall, delays mining, delays shipment of iron ore. And we had um, some cyclones brush the Pilbara in Australia. And again, the port of Port Headland shut down for a few days here and there, and the miners had heavy rains. And what that resulted in is production of iron ore in the March quarter from Brazil and Australia fell compared to the December quarter. So you've got demand growing at an unprecedented rate and supply falls. And that's really... Um, the ingredients you need for, for price, for the iron ore price to lift. And that's what we saw. And that's where we are today. So the outlook from here, I think we are expecting, what I, what I would say is we are expecting very strong demand in China to continue until at least mid-year. Um, rest of world steel demand, we think, grows gradually through this year into next year in line with the manufacture, the global manufacturing recovery and um, exit from uh, the pandemic lockdowns, et cetera. And so it's still a pretty positive backdrop for steel demand globally. But going into 2022, um, that starts to change. Uh, China's demand for steel will start to slow because China is winding back its monetary and fiscal support. Um, they're um, dialing back policy support for the economy. And that will start to see um, construction projects slow uh, into 2022. At the same time, as we move into 2022, Brazil's Vale will bring more supply back online and we'll see more supply coming out of places like Australia and elsewhere um, in response to high price. And so moving into 2022, mid-year particularly, the environment we think will be one where demand growth slows and supply growth increases. And that normally leads to lower prices. And that, that's how we see it panning out. So uh, over the next 12 to 15 months, we think the iron ore price probably falls 
um, down towards $100, $110 from current prices of around $190. It's a pretty big fall. Yeah, it is. It's a big fall. <laughs> and no, no, but but you know what? It's interesting because when we look in commodity markets, we typically look to the cost curve. That, that is, you know, a curve of production for all mm. producers globally. You know, what are the costs of production? And we look to the cost curve to provide a guide of, you know, where where where, where cost support will kick in uh, for price. Um, now, looking at the iron ore market, the cost curve, you know, the, the sort of meaningful support for price kicks in around $110, $120 a tonne at the moment. So spot prices of $190 are way above costs. Mm. And this is the issue. Um, now, right now it's fine because the market is in deficit. There's more demand than supply. But you know, if and when, well, in our case, when those conditions reverse, and you know, commodity markets always have a have a habit of um, of of adjusting and and returning to to sort of averages, historical averages over time. But so when those conditions reverse, when supply grows more and demand starts to slow, um, cost support for the iron ore price you know, starts to kick in around that 120 a tonne mark. And so that's the issue really. Um, price is fine today. We have lots of demand out there. Um, but you know, as demand starts to cool into next year, um, you know, we, we need to look for that cost support and it's quite quite a bit below current spot prices. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And again, you know, for investors who've been looking at resources for a long time, this is not going to come as a massive surprise to them. They know that, you know, resources, commodities are very cyclical, but for some of our newer investors who've never seen this before, it could be a bit of a shock, I think. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. And, um, you know, I guess... Yeah, I've been looking at this sector for my sins now long enough to understand that that commodity markets do always tend to to correct and revert um, eventually. Um, it's it's usually just a question of trying to work out you know how long you get that sort of um, you know those those super normal prices. Um, you know how long do those prices stick around, and therefore um, you know what do you do about that? So we've covered off the three sort of growth stories, the ones that our investors put put the most value into and that they're most excited about. The less sexy ones, and these are really quite challenging, I think, for a lot of people to contemplate, although I will say the energy sector is one that a lot of our investors will absolutely get onto pretty regularly, right? <laughs> Woodside and Santos and so on are, are in our investors' portfolios and they do tend to uh, buy those shares when, they, when they're under a bit of pressure. Thoughts about coal, gas, and oil in this environment? I know they're very, very different, but any thoughts? Yeah, so oil and gas, um, you know, we're quite bullish on the outlook. And really, that, that is based on our expectation that as vaccines roll out moving through this year into next year, uh, we will see a massive uplift in mobility and people moving. You know, for work travel, for you know, going to work, going to school, for for holidays, whatever it might be. Um, and in actual fact, that that uplift as vaccines roll out in you know some of the key markets, 
being the US, being Europe, that uplift in the second half of 2021 could drive the biggest six-month demand increase ever recorded for the oil market. And that's that's likely to be a very big deal. Now, for now, demand is still well below pre-pandemic peaks. And the market is being managed by suppliers. So OPEC and a number of other suppliers, most notably Russia, are cooperating on production to, to ensure that the, the excess inventory that was built up last year when the pandemic struck, um, they're managing supply to, to draw down that inventory. And their latest expectation is that that inventory overhang is removed by mid this year. Now, once inventories are back at a normal level, then the market will trade much more closely to its day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month supply-demand balance. Um, OPEC and the producer alliance certainly can increase production relatively quickly. But like I say, if the vaccine rollout pans out as we expect in the second half, there is going to be an almighty increase in global crude oil demand. And that that will be very supportive to price. Um, right now, the market is moving to factor in those sorts of expectations for a very strong demand uplift. And we're seeing the crude oil price rally um, strongly, which is what we expected. It's probably moved a little bit ahead of where we think it would have been for this time of the year, but the direction is absolutely in line with our expectations. And we think that continues into next year. So it's a pretty good outlook, to be honest, for the oil market. Uh, For gas, similarly, it's a good outlook, driven by economic recovery post-pandemic, and in particular for LNG markets, Australia being the world's largest exporter of LNG. We are now seeing a scramble in North Asia and Europe to restock depleted inventories. Um, European inventories are very low for this time of the year. Uh, It's been colder than usual so far in spring there. Um, Supply has been out in Norway. Pipeline supply from Russia has been down. And so we're seeing European gas users coming into the market and competing against North Asian uh, consumers for LNG cargoes to restock inventories. There is a growing likelihood that the gas market globally, the LNG market, moves through the Northern Hemisphere summer into Northern Hemisphere winter later this year with low inventory. And that's really quite bullish for price. Uh, And again, um, that will be pretty supportive. It it creates a great backdrop uh, for earnings for Australian LNG producers. I find your uh, short-term outlook, which is super bullish, on the same commodities that we're probably going to be looking to phase out over the next decade. <laughs> Quite interesting in contrast to the stuff we were talking about earlier. Yeah, look, it, that, that's you, you've actually nailed it. I mean, I am bullish in the, the short to medium term on crude oil, gas, um, you know, even coal to an extent. I think medium to long term, you know, from, from mid this decade through to end decade, you know, a lot of that calculus changes and most notably it'll change for thermal coal. Um, you know, but even even for oil, um, the rise of electric vehicles will inevitably 
start to weigh on oil demand growth. There's, there's no two ways about it. Um, now, fortunately, the supply side is where a lot of you know, fossil fuel producers, be it oil, gas, or coal, the supply side is where industry will be able to help sort of itself through the energy transition. And the reason there is oil and gas production globally tends to decline every year by about four to five percent, um, just because of the, the nature of um, the reservoirs. And so industry can start to wind capex back and we'll start to see supply grow by less than it would have done otherwise. And that can help industry meet a slowing demand growth profile over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you've mentioned you were sort of moderately bullish on coal. That's really interesting. Yeah, so it's a short-term view and, and really um, for thermal coal, it's around this idea that as the world economy recovers and comes out of the pandemic and stimulus takes hold and, and, and GDP growth, you know, really starts to hit, um, to hit its straps, then energy demand everywhere is going to lift. Um, and, and thermal coal will, will definitely get caught up in that. Um, and we're seeing that at the moment, um, Newcastle coal prices trading sort of low to mid 90 US dollars per ton. Um, and that's a pretty good price. Um, it's not as high as it's been um, in previous cycles, but it's certainly it's a pretty good price and a lot better than where it was, you know, sort of this time last year, languishing around 50. Um, so you know, I do think that thermal coal demand and price does relatively well in the short run, um, but it, it will be challenging, increasingly challenging moving through this decade. Um, Met coal is, is also, um, you know, generally bullish there. The one caveat is around um, the China-Australia trade dispute and China's ban on imports of Australian Met coal. This is driving massive dislocation in pricing in the Met coal market. We're seeing Australian Met coal prices um, in a less than half of similar quality Met coals delivered into China from Canada, the US and Russia. Um, and so Australian exporters are still being able to move tons into, into the seaborne market and to other customers outside of China, but the price they are receiving for their Met coal is at the biggest discount to other Met coal brands globally um, ever. Uh, and that's a real headwind. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a cost to Australia's met coal industry of the um, deteriorating relations between China and Australia. Um, I think also met coal prices are also weak uh, right now because of the pandemic worries in India. And so, you know, resolution there and eventual improvement there would also help to see met coal um, prices stabilise. But I think, you know, rolling forward a year, our view for Australian met coal prices is, is they will be higher than where they are today. Um, and that will be driven by that ongoing recovery in steel demand and steel production outside of China. We're already seeing that in terms of automotive manufacturing. We're seeing steel mills restart in places like Japan, uh, South Korea, 
And we think that process continues over the next 12 months and that will be the catalyst to drive Australian med coal prices higher. There's so much complexity in these fields. I think about Never a dull day, Gemma. Never a dull day. So that just just goes beautifully into what I was going to say next, which is you produce excellent overnight summaries, uh, perhaps not commenting on rare earth prices or uh, necessarily on lithium every day, but all of the major commodities you summarise, do a beautiful job. And then we also have the outlook pieces that you do. We do try to publish a snippet of these on NABTrade. So for anyone who's a NABTrade customer, we do try to get a bit of this out there, but there is just an incredible depth of research that you do that is not going to be available on NABTrade every day. How do people make sure they don't miss out on all the good stuff? Look, I think the best way um, is probably to to reach out to um, um, to you know, people like yourselves, reach out if you're a NAB customer, reach out to your NAB um, banker or contact, um, jump on the NAB uh, website, um, and customers can self-select to receive the research. Um, but yeah, reach out to your NAB representative. Um, if you're not a NAB customer, become a NAB customer, <laughs> clearly, um, and we'll we'll get you guys set to receive the research. If you're having trouble with it, and I have to apologise because I had heaps of trouble with it, um, get in touch with us via the email address I'll give in a second and we will try to hook you up because the the markets guys just produce all this amazing stuff all the time. And if resources are your thing or you want to feel more informed about it, it's been incredibly beneficial for me, I will say. It's fabulous, the quality and depth of content that's coming out all the time. Lachlan Shaw from NAB Markets, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Gemma. Um, Absolute pleasure as always and um, trust that your listeners enjoyed the podcast too. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for future topics. We do look at what people love most, which is why we're talking to Lachlan again after gold was such a hit. You can email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and you can use that email address as well if you would like to subscribe to some of Lachlan's stuff. We'll make sure that you can uh, get onto that list. We look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.